Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. People come in contact with the healthcare system over and over again throughout their life and during their enrollment period, right? So I think having good gender questions asked kind of at each point of care would be a real useful starting place. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Recent reports suggest about six-tenths of a percent of the United States population, or 1.4 million people, identify as transgender. Good information about the health status of this group has been hard to come by, although research is growing. Some data come from Medicare, which is useful, but not representative of the population as a whole. The health status of people who identify as transgender is the subject of today's health policy. I'm here with Landon Hughes, a doctoral candidate at the University of Michigan. Hughes and co-authors published a paper in the September 2021 issue of Health Affairs describing the morbidity of privately insured transgender people as compared to cisgender people using insurance claims data from 2001 to 2019. They report that transgender people were at an overall greater risk for morbidity than their cisgender counterparts across a broad range of conditions. And notably, results were different for transfeminine than transmasculine people. We'll get into these and other results during our conversation. Landon Hughes, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you here to talk about these important findings. Uh, You're filling an important research gap. So let's start with what those gaps are. What do we know about the health and healthcare of transgender people and how it compares to cisgender people? Yeah, that's a that's a great question and a great place to start. Um, so preliminary research has been conducted in the VA, Medicare, and private insurance that has found some significant differences in morbidity between trans and cis folks. And then there is the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System, or BRFIS, which has um, begin, begun to document these sorts of differences as well. But they've only collected this information on gender in a handful of states, and they only ask the question, do you consider yourself to be transgender, which we know um, excludes a whole host of trans folks who may not say right off the bat that they identify as transgender. Um, but recent data has been coming out within the last couple months I'm using TransPOP, which is a probability sample across the whole U.S., but I must say the sample size for trans folks in the survey is quite small, and they only look at a handful of conditions, Um, but we're beginning to see certain trends between trans and cis folks, you know, across all of these, that there are some significant differences in morbidity. So we have little bits of data here and there that aren't represented of the population as a whole, but... If you take those little pieces and add them together, do you get a sense of differences in physical health, in mental health, and in access to services that at least is a starting point for additional analysis? Certainly, what we have seen preliminary data suggests that um, trans folks do have higher rates of um, mental health morbidity, so depression, anxiety, those sorts of things. Um, We know from other samples that trans folks also avoid healthcare systems or traditional healthcare systems altogether um, because of stigmatizing either policies or experiences that they've had within those settings. So yeah, we are starting to kind of piece it together. Um, We also know that there are some differences in cardiovascular risk between trans folks and cis folks, although that's still sort of up for debate and why that might be the case, and we can maybe get to that a little bit later. Um, But yeah, so we are, there 
you know, preliminary data suggests there are significant differences in certain outcomes between trans and cis populations. Although, like you said, we don't have a full picture quite yet. So I'm really intrigued uh, with a comment you made a moment ago that we don't have great questions. And this is a topic that often comes up in analysis of stigmatized groups, which is a, a direct question about someone's uh, uh, legal status or gender identity may not elicit uh, an, an accurate response uh, for myriad reasons. And as you say, we just haven't been asking the questions uh, for very long or in many of the data sets. So this notion of how you actually identify within a large uh, database who is trans, uh, I, I find that really interesting. You're using insurance claims data, which is you know, one particular type of data. How do you identify who's trans in those data? How accurate do you think your identification is? Yeah, so that's it's a great point. So you know, in an ideal world, I just want to say this up front, that we would have good gender questions that include trans folks in their entirety. Um, and so that we can actually get larger sample sizes and know that we're not excluding folks. But unfortunately, where we are, that's just not the case. So what our team has had to do to be able to answer some of the questions that we're interested in is use claims data, as you just mentioned. Um, so our, our approach, I have to say, resembles that of Dr. Jasuja et al. Um, in the 2020 paper they published. Um, so we've created an algorithm, basically, that identifies trans folks in claims data that was created by doctors who serve trans patients, researchers who engage with trans folks, um, and then also in consultation with several community advisory boards that we work with. Um, so briefly, it's a very long document, but briefly, um, we use gender dysphoria diagnosis claims, which are claims um, that are sometimes required by insurers to access gender-affirming care. Um, so there are lots of sex exclusions for certain types of care um, that insurers provide. And so this is one way of going around those, um, saying if somebody has this claim, they're able to access certain services um, and have them covered by insurance. Um, we also use trans-specific surgeries. So ICD-9 specifically had very specific codes that were related to trans care and surgeries. Um, and then um, a development that Jasuja created was using um, another claim called endocrine disorder not otherwise specified, and I'll probably just say endo-NOS moving forward, but um, this is a claim that is commonly used by trans folks who are avoiding the stigmatizing label of gender dysphoria or may not be experiencing a great amount of gender dysphoria so they don't need that diagnosis in the first place. So we've used that code in conjunction with a handful of exclusions, looking to see if they're taking hormones or had other surgeries to verify sort of that we are confident those folks are also trans. So what we say uh, is, is that we, we have a highly specific algorithm. So we know the folks that we're looking at are trans, but it certainly has low sensitivity in that we're not capturing the entire trans population within our data set. Um, so that's important for the ramifications of our findings and any of these sorts of approaches moving forward, um, that this limitation exists. We're only looking at a subset of folks. Yeah, but uh, a lot of work going into trying to do that as well as possible. 
So let's just jump into sort of the top level findings. You do find significant differences in morbidity. Uh, just give us the, the top level here. Yeah, so we use the Alex Hauser Comorbidity Index, which has been associated with increased hospitalization and mortality within the general population. Um, we looked at 26 different chronic conditions um, that span from cardiovascular disease, neurological disorders, mental health, and different other conditions. And what we found is that when we were comparing just the trans population to the cisgender population, we found that trans folks were at a greater risk for 23 of the 26 chronic conditions that we studied. And the biggest differences we found were related to mental health and substance use conditions such as depression and drug and alcohol abuse. We also found significant differences um, in HIV and COPD. And the mental health findings, they have some precedent. Uh, others have found those as well. But it also sounds like there may be some bias issues associated with those given who seeks care. Can you say a little more about that? Certainly. So within trans populations, um, in, especially in this data, some providers require that trans folks visit a psychiatrist to get a uh, diagnosis before they can access gender-affirming care or treatments. And so they're likely being exposed to folks who are better at diagnosing depression and other sorts of mental health conditions than your general clinician. And so it's likely that that requirement may be upwardly biasing some of these findings around mental health. Um, so it's important caveat to our findings. But frankly, they are quite significant. And we, we do see within general um, populations um, that what limited data we do have, we do see increased rates of depression and anxiety, suicidal ideation, those sorts of things. So it's, it's certainly um, likely, uh, but it, it's an important caveat to our um, to our data and our findings. One interesting aspect of your work is that uh, given the focus on identifying the population, you were actually able to analyze subgroups within the trans population. Um, I'd really like to hear about how you define those subgroups and what the findings are, but um, maybe we'll do that after we take a short break. At the Surgical Care Coalition, we're working to protect patients, improve their quality of life, and ensure timely access to quality care. But proposed Medicare cuts to surgical care are devastating to both surgeons and patients. Stop these wrong cuts. Learn more about how you can help us stop these cuts at surgicalcare.org. Perinatal mental health issues, including perinatal depression and other mood disorders, affect many individuals in the U.S. and globally, and can lead to harm to birthing people and children. The October issue of Health Affairs features a cluster of papers on this important topic. It covers issues such as screening and access to treatment, health equity, and policy opportunities. Check the show notes to order your copy today. And we're back. I'm speaking with Landon Hughes about the health status of transgender people relative to cisgender people. When we went to the break, we hit the top-level findings, but I noted that uh, the paper analyzes subgroups within the trans population. I wonder if you could tell us uh, what those subgroups are, how they're defined, and then we'll start looking at the differences across them. 
Yeah, so we know that morbid conditions vary within um, the general population by gender. Um, and so it likely varies within trans populations by gender as well. Um, early data from BRFIS, again, we've talked about this before, only collected in a handful of states, but they did find differences in health status between trans men, trans women, and gender non-binary folks. Um, so we were interested in sort of exploring those sorts of questions in our data as well. Um, we don't, like I said before, we don't have people's gender identity, um, but we do know whether or not they've received feminizing or masculinizing hormones or surgeries. And so we've um, categorized our trans sample by what we call gender spectrum. So we have two main categories, so trans feminine to non-binary spectrum folks and trans masculine to non-binary spectrum folks. So for example, transmasculine and non-binary folks um, were people assigned female at birth but are taking masculinizing hormones, for example. So again, not perfect, but it can approximate um, somebody who might be transitioning either to a transmasculine identity or may identify as non-binary. So some, some folks who are implementing this work, I have some colleagues, um, Downing and Yi, who are implementing some of this work. And they use the term sex assigned at birth, which is, um, I think, a valid way of describing our kind of differences or the subgroups. Um, in con consultation with our community advisory boards, they want to stay away from sex-specific language. And so they prefer this sort of gender spectrum language. So that's what we've used moving forward. When we look at the differences of subgroups within the transgender population, we found that transmasculine and non-binary people were at a greater risk for 19 of the 26 conditions that we studied, and were particularly at risk for cardiovascular diseases such as cardiac arrhythmia and valvular disease, as well as obesity and rheumatoid arthritis. Now, conversely, we found that transfeminine and non-binary folks had higher rates of drug and alcohol use disorders, cancer, and HIV. The impetus behind our work is really to look at these, you know, uh, all of these conditions, think about comorbidity, but also provide a starting place for other researchers to take the ball from here. So we're not experts in each one of these 26 conditions, right? But we are trying to provide a baseline for other people to use in their work moving forward. So I think these subgroups really, really hammer away where folks may want to focus their efforts. I'm so glad you mentioned that. I mean, when you do sort of the first work in an area, you're often raising more questions than you're answering, but, but you're <laughs> As you say, you're creating a baseline or a starting point for additional analysis. So what are some of the questions that emerge from those differences? I think they're specific to each condition, correct? Um, and I think, for example, if we're looking at some of the cardiovascular diseases, right, um, like hypertension, for example, we know that in cis populations, there seems to be a difference over time that happens in terms of the relative risk of hypertension between cis men and cis women. So earlier on, cis men in the earlier ages, they are at a higher risk for hypertension. Later ages, they're at a lower risk compared to cis women. So a lot of the questions that I have really, and I think this comes from my demography training are, what are happening these conditions over age, right? Um, I think that's the biggest question I would think that applies probably to most of these conditions. How is this happening across the life course, I think, are some of the real questions that we need to start grappling with in the literature. 
Fortunately, claims are longitudinal. They provide the opportunity to do that. But again, we've mentioned some of the, the drawbacks of these sorts of data. But I think those are the sorts of questions I'm most interested in. Additionally, do these vary by racial categories within each of these subgroups? Region. So there's, there's a whole host of questions that I have. Um, but I think relative to the gender cohorts, it's really what's happening over time with these different groups is what I'm most interested in. Uh, that's really uh, interesting course of analysis. I am curious if you were advising an insurer, since you're working with claims data here, um, and said to them, you know, this we we really want to understand these health differences. Uh, is there additional information they could be collecting as part of the claim that would make your ability to identify the population easier? So we know that some claims, um, and I, this is true for some insurers and not all insurers, but do provide, um, I believe they call them sex indicators on some of their claims data. So um, some of the data that we're working with in Medicare, they collect sex at the pharmacy level, which you know can have a whole host of problems if you're not asking directly the person to self-identify. Um, but we know that people come in contact with the healthcare system over and over again throughout their life and during their enrollment period, right? So I think having good gender questions asked kind of at each point of care would be a real useful starting place, especially because gender identity can vary over one's life course. So simply including it in an enrollment form still doesn't fully capture the full population. So um, if I were <laughs> if I were the head of an insurance company, I would be implementing at least the two-step method that some folks have had, where you ask sex assigned at birth and then gender identity, um, so that you can identify a good chunk of the trans population. Um, but again, I know that it would potentially be onerous, and you know you'd have to train folks on exactly what how to collect those sorts of information. But it would make my life and the lives of folks studying trans populations a lot easier. Well, that's uh, we have to start somewhere. And uh, all of these kinds of questions uh, begin maybe a little rough and with a lot of measurement error, but hopefully over time we, we do a better job. Um, I recognize, as you said a moment ago, that uh, the story behind the differences is uh, variable across condition that you're sort of doing a starting point here. But I am curious, given the overall finding of elevated risk for chronic conditions among the trans population as a whole and the broader evidence base that you're building on regarding those differences, um, we're a health policy journal. And so we're always asking the question, what policies could address an issue? And here, if we describe the issue as the disparity in health status. What kind of health policies could you envision that would reduce uh, the disparities between trans and cis uh, populations? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so we haven't controlled directly for stigma in our analysis, but there's a growing body of evidence that suggests stigma um, is related to poor mental and physical health conditions among trans populations. So I think if we don't start tackling stigma, we're not going to make any headway in any in any sense. Um, so I think a good starting place would would be to enact protections for trans folks in places like healthcare, housing, and to to rescind laws that we know are are stigmatizing themselves. So some states allow healthcare workers to refuse service to trans folks 
for religious exemptions and other things. Um, they get, there's also um, a whole host of laws that are being um, introduced or bills being introduced in state houses, mostly in the South right now, that are um, seeking to restrict access to gender-affirming care for trans youth or making it illegal for trans youth to participate in sports. Um, and these are, you know, these send messages to folks that they're less than, that these are not safe spaces for them where they can't come as their full selves. And so I think really a good place to start is to rescind sort of stigmatizing policies, at, especially at the state level, um, and provide protections. But we certainly know those aren't enough. Um, we could do all of those things right now. And I think we would still see disparities. So I think we need to really work upstream um, and educate folks across the board on the complexity of gender and frankly, just break the binary gender categories that we have now. If you think about the way we've structured our society, our restrooms are gendered, you know, our birth certificates are all gendered. We have all of these exclusions and claims data based on your sex and all of these certain things. Um, and I think we really need to rethink just how we reify those sorts of categories um, broadly, which I know is a much harder work to do, but I think is ultimately more lasting. Well, I think you capture the challenge ahead of us uh, very nicely. So Landon, uh, appreciate your work, uh, your paper that we were able to publish and very much appreciate having you as a guest on Health Policy. Yeah, thank you so much. I had a wonderful time. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.